What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. A gentle reminder of our special offer on our new subscription service, Intelligence Squared Plus. Yes, you don't have to live in London anymore to take part and vote in our live debates. Please go to intelligencesquared.com slash plus and subscribe today with a special offer of 20% off using the code PODCAST. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, PODCAST. The topic for today was whether business can deliver social good in the age of COVID-19 and beyond. And we were joined by two fascinating authors, Warren Waldmanis, author of Accountable, How We Can Save Capitalism, and Michelle Marr, author of Competition Is Killing Us. So two great authors with differing perspectives on how capitalism can be used to deliver social good in the coming years. And we hope you enjoy their conversation. Hello, I'm Linda Yu, an economist and author of The Great Economists. Welcome to the special video episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. A reminder, you can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm delighted to host this discussion on can business deliver social good after COVID-19 with two experts who hold contrasting views. I'm joined by Michelle Ma and by Warren Bodmanis. And here are their new books. Um, there's more information um, on these books in the description. So I'm going to start off with the question that we're here to discuss, which is, can business deliver social good after COVID-19? Yes or no? And why? Warren first and then Michelle. Well, thanks, Linda. And first, let me just say what a great pleasure it is to be discussing the future of capitalism, such an important topic uh, with you and Michelle today. The answer to your question in brief is, yes, business can reform capitalism, and it must. If you actually look back at capitalism's 250 report card, it reads incredibly well. Um, In the first 3,000 years up to 1750, GDP growth per capita was exactly 0%. No change in standard of living. Since then, it's grown by 37 times. Actually, just since 1990, we've lifted over a billion people out of poverty. So capitalism as a system has done incredible things. But there are issues today that need addressing. Over the past 40 years, a number of things have gone wrong, and it's time for business to step up and try to answer these challenges. Thank you, Linda, uh, and thanks, Warren. It's really great to be part of this conversation. 
I have huge optimism as to um, the ability of capitalism to change itself in light of the COVID crisis. I think that what we've seen over the past few months is that we can do the impossible. We can turn the economy off. We can change completely the way we work. Um, we can change completely the way we engage with the economy. With the COVID crisis and with the Black Lives Matter movement, what we see is that a renewed emphasis on things that we haven't really been thinking about in terms of how to organize the economy. We see mutual aid networks, we see collective action, we see a kind of emphasis on the collective good. So I have a huge optimism as to the possibility for reforming capitalism. Thank you very much. Now, Warren, you write that corporate social responsibility has been relegated to the marketing or investor relations team, not the top decision-making teams. So if CSR is often criticized as window dressing, as you write, what makes the new focus ESG different? How can ESG be made core to every business? For instance, should firms pay suppliers more, even though it reduces their margins because suppliers are stakeholders? Well, I think that um, creating durable relationships with your suppliers such that you're helping to shield them when things are going tough for them and they're helping to shield you when things go tough for you, that's what a partnership is. And so um, to me, a lot of, um, when we talk about kind of engaging stakeholders more completely, what we're really talking about is just time horizons. We're, We're talking about turning transactional things that tend to happen in weeks or months increments or quarters um, and turning them into uh, things that last years, whether that's at your relationship with your employees, your suppliers, your customers, uh, your communities. Uh, to me, it's, a really, it's, a, it's mostly a time horizon thing. And the truth is, you know, when you think of the value of a corporation, 90% of the value of a corporation is not prop this year's profits. 90% of the value is what's going to happen afterwards. And yet we're so maniacally focused. We have this sort of meat-headed short-termism that, gosh, if I can squeeze my supplier a little bit this month, that, you know, because that's going to show up in my quarterly earnings and then my multiple is going to apply. It's going to create, you know, value for shareholders. We have this idea that somehow that that's good for business. That creates value. Profit and value are not the same thing. Uh, profit's what happens today. Value is what's built over, over, over many, many years. And so to me, that's, what we're, that's a little bit what we're missing. So uh, the first chapter in our book is about a socially responsible strip mine. And I love to tell this story because it, it tends to shock and make uh, impact investors feel very uncomfortable because that notion doesn't really, isn't, isn't a natural one for most impact investors. But the cool thing about it is, the cool thing about this particular business is it's a family business that thinks intergenerationally. So when they clean up a site, they restore it to a state of nature because the community that they're in is, you know, they need the buy-in of the community that they're in. They fish in the same streams. They hunt in the same woods. And so to me, that's a really cool example of people behaving themselves because they're thinking long term. Uh, Michelle, um, let me get your take on this. Is that enough? I was really reassured to see um, some examples in Warren's book that really get into these tricky industries because I think a lot of the conversations around impact investing and so on really focus on the win-wins. So we can all agree that like sustainable baby products are good, <laughs> but um, but what about the industries where you really need to see change? And I suppose where, where I come to with that in terms of, I suppose, time horizons is that can we really trust a corporate board to kind of take the bigger picture into account. So we see today, for example, um, British Petroleum has released a big package of, um, of changes that it's going to be implementing in its business to achieve net zero. But 
This is after decades of campaigning, of the oil industry hiding information around the true harms of fossil fuels. And whilst I do believe that if British Petroleum were a stakeholder-minded business, it might consider those risks slightly differently. I also think that, that we have a real issue of enforcement. So how do you, you know, go from basically allowing companies to set their own horizons, set their own levels of interest and risk, and to actually empowering stakeholders to have a say over that. And that's both, you know, something enforceable by regulators, maybe by the courts, by stakeholders themselves. And I think that we can look at some kind of models where companies have um, their stakeholders on their board. And sometimes we can kind of wonder, well, why not? Why wouldn't you? When you why wouldn't, you know, Spotify have musicians on their board or Deliveroo um, or Postmates have delivery riders on their board? Because actually there's a lot of, you know, commercial benefit to that. And I think there's a there's a kind of common idea that if a company has to maximize not just profits but also maximize the interests of multiple stakeholders then corporate directors are kind of left in this morass where they, they're kind of being pulled in multiple di different directions but no one is saying that it's actually possible to multiply or to, sorry to maximize all of those different interests all that we're asking is that reasonable efforts are taken to actually consider these different interests and where there is kind of deep conflict then likely we're in a situation where we're talking about something that should be decided you know at large at a democratic level so if we're thinking about the business model of facebook can it be really left to effectively now it's left to just mark zuckerberg and, and a few insiders because they have a dual class share structure it's an enormous company with enormous wealth and enormous power and we saw in last week's congressional hearings um, where we had you know the four ceos of microsoft amazon google and facebook um, uh, being questioned about their business we saw a remarkable you know, lack of humility and of the really kind of lack of understanding of how these businesses are really impacting democracy and, you know, businesses, you know, the, the vibrancy of the rest of the economy. And I think that I just have a little bit more skepticism as to, you know, leaving those same people to decide which interests are the most important. I, I don't, I'm not sure that that's going to have a kind of transformative effect. It, it feels to me like the big issue here is really around how do we measure these things? How do we hold people accountable for actually doing good or when they do harm, how do we hold them accountable for that? And, it, and, and the, the conversation around ESG today is a little bit like where gap accounting was before the Great Depression. It's, you know, there's, it, before the Great Depression, there was no standardized uh, accounting. So people kind of reported however they wanted to. Uh, today, there's no standardized ESG reporting. People report however they want to. And because many uh, corporate boards and uh, CEOs are in the impossible position of being caught between Milton Friedman and this emerging consensus that ESG is important, they tend to try to fake it. And there's a tendency to do that. And it's a natural human tendency to try to do that. I don't think there's any will, ill will behind it. But if we can arm people with improved measurement of you know, what actually is pro-social and what isn't, I think corporate leaders are increasingly coming to the view that running your company that way is actually a good way to run your company. They just don't know how. So we've got to arm them with the measurement tools. I do think uh, one of the roles of government can be to enforce certain kinds of ESG reporting, how you're treating your workers, for example, what kinds of things are happening with your, your carbon emissions, for example. I think we could all agree these are important issues. And if we could come up with ways of actually scoring how companies are doing on them, I think accountability will follow much more naturally. If today, nine and 10 CEOs say they care about ESG issues. They want to be pro-social. 
but more than nine out of 10 CEOs currently believe they're already doing a great job on that. They're not, but we can help them. And I think one of the ways that we can do that is, you know, if the business roundtable says it wants to care about ESG, let's get them, let's pin them down on measurement because that's the way we're going to get somewhere here is by actually uh, holding, you know, praising uh, good stuff and, and holding people accountable for what isn't working. My fear though, um, Warren, is that when we measure things, they get taken into account, but that they essentially can then get kind of priced into the share price. And then suddenly the bar either gets kind of raised or lowered across the industry and everybody knows, okay, actually they've got a really bad score. I don't need to actually try that hard because ours is like slightly better than that. So I, would, I, th- I think maybe there's a little bit of... Um, a need to know what happens if you get a bad score. So what, what can people do? Because if you're a monopolistic company, one of the biggest companies in the world, and your book, I think, focuses on big companies, where else can consumers go? Where can suppliers go? What leverage do they have? Are we enabling them? You know, we were talking about the 1970s. That was a time when union membership was a lot higher than it is now. So there was actually a countervailing force to the force, to the power of, of corporations that was also part of that distributive mechanism in terms of sharing the, the gains of capitalism. The most powerful countervailing mechanism is self-interest. And if we can get corporate uh, leaders to realize that investing in workers, that uh, paying them properly, motivating them with mission, more than half of uh, workers in the UK, I think it is, can't even explain why their job exists. If we can get uh, folks to actually be engaged in their work, purpose, training, career paths, all these things, companies will be more productive. And if we can show that, uh, corporate leaders will, will follow. And to me, that's the big gap. We've lost the skill of, figuring, of showing how to make investments in our stakeholders and showing that they can pay off, that they can actually lead to longer term stability. Do you know that in the United States, 13% of workers actively work against the interests of their corporations because they're mad at how they're being treated. There's over a half a trillion dollars of waste, uh, corporate waste each year due to disaffected employees. It is in the self-interest of corporations to do a much better job of that. It won't solve everything, but it'll solve a lot. And this meat-headed short-termism, I think, stands in the way of corporate value. So to me, the thing that gets me really energized is there are so many things at the intersection of the social and commercial that are unexplored. That, uh, to me, just there's this enormous opportunity. And as I said before, there is a role for government. There is a role for philanthropy. But why don't we try to get that stuff right? Uh, you know, I think, that's, I think it's critical. I think we've honed in on your major point of difference between you two, (laughs) which I think is going to come out further as we go into some of the other uh, things that you cover in your book to support both of your positions. One is around self-interest in Warren's view, how we can change shareholder value, this concept into social value. And then Michelle's skepticism about that and Michelle's uh, proposal for stakeholder control over company decision making. And actually, before I talk about a bit more about the government's role, Michelle, just to uh, just to quickly follow up on this, if a company has a lot of stakeholders, communities, employees, suppliers, distributors, customers, how many people would have to go on this board to have effective decision making? It's a really good question. And I think the answer is there has been almost zero experimentation on this. So we do not really know. We have been working with this model of the corporation for hundreds of years. And yet we've been actually quite narrow in how we've used this powerful tool. And so there's a lot of research and kind of experimentation, as I say, that needs to kind of go on so that we can really see what are the best models. And they won't be the same for each company. And I think that one of the, one of the realities is that it's, it's going to be really messy. Like democracy is messy. There's not a kind of 
easy answer to say that this is the um, you know, golden principle. But I really think that if you can imagine how many thousands of you know, professors, MBAs, um, business books have been written, written about maximizing shareholder value, if we had that same collective energy applied to this question of maximizing stakeholder value or balancing stakeholder interests or balancing power in the economy, I feel like we've got some Nobel Prizes that are waiting to be administered and, and kind of given out to people who are willing to take on that agenda. So yeah, I don't have an easy answer to that, but I think that that's really in the hands of our business leaders to show us if you are going to work in the interests of stakeholders, what does that look like? Because we, we have some limited models, the B Corp movement is, is an example, but we need more. We need it on a bigger scale and we need to see what it looks like when we're dealing with systemically important companies. Mm. Warren, I want to uh, move on to the sort of the role of government, because obviously this is something that um, it's actually I'm going to give you read you back a title of a chapter from your book. Why can't government just force corporations to be good? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I think uh, many folks uh, see, uh, you know, government as uh, sort of the parents in the house and maybe they can just sort of you know, create some create some policy and everything, all this stuff will go away. But let me tell you, there's a lot of unintended consequences when government gets too deep into the huddle, as we, as we, uh, as we would say here in the U.S. Government can be a great referee, but when you bring them in too close, so let me give you an example. I think most folks would agree that CEO pay as a ratio relative to the average worker has gotten a little bit out of control. So back in 1965, the ratio of a CEO pay to the average worker was roughly 20, 20 times. In 1995, it was 120 times. Now it's 300 times. But get, so guess, guess what the government's done? The government has, over, over the years, said, okay, we're going to force public companies to disclose CEO pay. Then they said, okay, we're going to force public companies to disclose the ratio of CEO pay to the average worker. Then they said, we're going to limit the deductibility, right? So these are the things that they tried. And yet, it continues to happen. And, uh, and, 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 and what, what ends up happening then is CEOs focus on this issue of, you know, they're getting paid now with stock options. And so now they're focused on this, on what happens with share, the share price. So if we think that um, short termism is part of the problem, government policy led to help foster that. And so to me, it comes back to how much can the state really enforce? And if it becomes cat and mouse and adversarial, what kind of a world do you live in? You end up in a, in a place where government is, is, is chasing around the corporations, the corporations trying to outbox the government. I think what we need is more collaborative, more collaborative approach to, to problem, problem solving. And I think if, if the COVID era has taught us anything, it's that government should work together with corporations to solve big problems. Michelle, same question to you. Why can't governments just force corporations to be good? Are you worried about Warren's unintended consequences? They can force uh, companies to be good, or at least they can try. I think that the criticisms that Warren makes in terms of the track record of government regulation are totally valid. But I think we have to understand that that regulation in the last few decades has been taking place in an era in which neoliberalism has been the ascendant ideology. So government has effectively had one hand tied behind its back. And if we think about the kinds of corporate harms and harms of corporate activities that we've been talking about, ultimately, there is no long stop for corporate activities. Anybody can form a company 
corporation for any uh, legal purpose. And as long as they can write down um, any regulatory fines as a cost of doing business, as long as they can um, you know, price in any possible risks, then they're basically free to do what they want. I and mean, we see that Twitter is, has just announced that they are likely to be subject to a $250 million fine from the FTC for breaching their promise to not use personal information in personalized ads. So they announced on their earnings call, we'll we'll just put $150 million aside so that we cover that risk. So, I mean, if that's the way the business operates, then we're not really going to see any fundamental change. If we look at old older models for how we used to regulate corporations, like right back at the beginning of, of when corporations were created, you actually needed a corporate charter to create a corporation. And that charter could be revoked if you abused or misused your privilege of being a corporation. And so I think there needs to be some kind of point beyond which we say, X or Y corporation has outlived their usefulness. Let's break it up. Let's take, you know, disperse the assets. Let's see what our kind of vibrant economy can do with those resources and put them to better use. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code SQUARED to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. I'm here with Warren Bodmanis and Michelle Ma. And we're discussing whether business can deliver social good. Warren, I want to give you a chance to set out the ways that you would change the way that businesses operate so they can deliver social good. You mentioned a number of examples in your book, Unilever, Patagonia, uh, Whole Foods, as exceptions. (laughs) So what needs to change? And so they're not the exceptions. So uh, that's a really good question, Linda. I think the, the biggest thing, and it actually harkens back to something Michelle just said, purpose and, and accountable ownership. I, I mean, um, so if you go back to what Michelle said, go, look, let's look back at corporations right at the beginning. Uh, the, uh, Michelle's right. Corporations used to have to de- define their purpose in their charter. 
And in fact, even today, they still have to do that, except for everyone just writes to do what is lawful in the state of Delaware. So this, this vestige of, of corporate charters, I think, is a really important point. But uh, can you imagine today if uh, the American government or the UK government had the ability to revoke a charter through some political process? Uh, in the political politicalized environment we have today, it would be impossible to do business. So if you want to talk about um, ways of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, unfortunately, that would be a, a real clear way to do that. However, it is my belief as a practitioner that adopting purpose in your charter is actually a really good business uh, activity, a really good business principle. Yeah, I've seen it happen in microcosm. Uh, in, in corporations that, uh, that, that I've bought as an impact investor, we bought a, a, a little gym business that's mission was to bring health through fitness to uh, small towns in the Midwest where diabetes and obesity were huge issues. And, we, and, and by putting that mission into its charter, we changed the trajectory of that business. Uh, we attracted new kinds of executives. We motivated the workforce. We improved retention. So it was, you know, it was a hugely successful event. And by the way, uh, just at the end of June, Danone did the same thing. The, you know, the French food giant adopted uh, its mission statement into its charter and it said its mission is to deliver healthy, uh, healthy health through food uh, and do it in an environmentally responsible way. So there was real promise in that. But I believe that that is enlightened self-interest. And I think if the government were to get involved, especially the way the government works today, I think we'd see unintended consequences on a scale that's almost unimaginable. I think um, just to kind of correct the record there, the, the funny thing is that the government actually does have this power already, both in the US and in the UK. State attorneys general in every state have the power to revoke corporate charters. And in the UK, we have this kind of very little used and kind of sitting and under a dusty pile of statutes, um, Section 124A of the Insolvency Act, which allows the Secretary of State to petition a court for the winding up of the company in the public interest. And I, I totally agree that we should not be kind of for political reasons going around, you know, shutting down companies. I do share the concern that, well, if, if for nothing else, whilst we're kind of talking here about corporate power, there is a whole other conversation to be had. And it certainly applies to certain governments around the world around state domination and oppression at the, at the hands of the state. So I, I do kind of appreciate that we don't necessarily want to kind of unleash the politicization of all business. But I do think that when we're thinking about the power and potential of business to do good, I mean, you know, we've Warren mentioned the kind of disillusioned workforce and uh, what they could possibly be doing if they weren't constantly trying to undermine the, um, the activities of the corporations that they were working for. We look at how, um, you know, we've got about $19 trillion sitting on corporate balance sheets, or at least that was what it looked like before, um, before COVID. That those are huge resources that could be put, um, put to work. But I think we need to be always conscious of how the power is distributed, you know, who, who gets a say over, the, over those pools of money and, and what actually, what impacts there are. You know, we talk about accountability and I think it's really great the examples that you use. I suppose I'm maybe more concerned with the bad actors, those that are trying to kind of get away with, with making as much money as possible without, you know, maybe with ticking the boxes, maybe by um, trying to say, you know, okay, invest, impact investors can go care about ESG over here. Um, there will always be pools of international financial capital that are willing to invest in you know, the dirtiest possible industries. How do we actually regulate those if those industries also have huge political power? It's, a, it's actually a really, I mean, so I think I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the, the question of the bad actor. One of, uh, one of the people who uh, gave us advice as we were writing this book was a former colleague of mine from Bain and Company days. And 
he was saying, well, imagine the example of, you know, Gazprom or some, you know, uh, some, you know, uh, oil uh, business operating in a, in a state that doesn't care about ESG issues. Is it really in their interest to uh, get to a place where they're, you know, super clean on, 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 uh, on, on the environmental side? Uh, clearly, the answer is no. So uh, there is a feedback loop with everyday citizens that I think is really critical here. And that feedback loop resides, yes, in our, our power as voters, for sure. It also resides in our power as customers and workers and savers. And to the extent that we have the ability to give money as philanthropy as, you know, in, in that capacity as well. And so to me, all of this, we, we all play many of these roles. And so uh, to me, when we use the word citizen capitalism in our book, what we're, what we're trying to harken back to is to sort of the original ideas of, of Adam Smith, who didn't just write The Wealth of Nations, he also wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And he wrote that the wise and virtuous man is at all times willing that his own private interest should be sacrificed uh, to the public interest. And so to me, the, the question is, if we inhabit all of those different roles truly as citizens, I think there's a much brighter future ahead. But if we inhabit all of those roles in only what can those things do for my, for my near-term personal self-interest, I think that we're, uh, I think capitalism has a rough road ahead. And so to me, it's, it's a question about us pulling in, in, in all of our roles in the same direction. I absolutely agree. I think we need to be you know, transforming um, our relationship with capitalism away from this idea that we are recipients either of the benefits or the harms. Um, rather, we should be you know, active participants, um, as, as Warren outlines. But I think that in order to do that, we need to be kind of thinking a little bit more about, you know, where can you actually leverage that power and how can you actually translate those ideas um, into action? And I think it's brilliant that we are you know, showcasing better examples. Both of us in our books, we have got you know, a list, list of examples of companies that are doing better. And I think that part of the problem is we have this kind of pervasive ideology that really prioritizes individualism it talks you know it, it speaks to your wallet and not to your kind of moral sentiments um, and I think that if we are to really get the handle on these issues we need to be fundamentally changing that ideology and in a way Warren when you talk about activating citizens in that way I'm curious as to you know why stop short of the at the doors of the corporation you know uh, we we're kind of why not kind of open those doors and allow, allow stakeholders in? Um, because I think that there are you know, questions over what does it do to a board, for example, to have employees on the board. The examples from Germany, where that's the common model of co-determination, show that these companies are more resilient and you know, they were more resilient in the financial crisis. Potentially, we'll see that they're more resilient now. You know, having an employee on a board, for example, when health and safety of your frontline staff is now a pressing issue. Those lines of communication so that people can be saying you know, straight to the board, there's an issue here, um, a COVID issue that we need to be addressing. This is a fundamental issue about how our operations are, are working. I think that there's no need to kind of really compartmentalize those, those channels of communication and that there's, we have mechanisms potentially to really leverage all of the different knowledge and information that, are, that is embodied in all the different stakeholders of, of, of the economy. But I, I think, Michelle, though, that, that happily, stakeholders are already in the conversation. I mean, if you look at um, what workers did at Google, thousands of people protested a relationship that Google had with the Department of Defense and, and Google canceled, uh, canceled a contract. 
Um, you know, uh, you could look at what happened with, at, at Wayfair uh, when workers uh, protested. Uh, they're doing, you know, uh, delivering furniture to uh, some of the places that housed uh, illegal immigrants, and, and there was a big, big issue around that. And so, I think workers' voices already exist in corporations. I think corporations. But what should... about what happened in you know Amazon's warehouses when there were concerns about the level of spread of COVID in those warehouses? And there's it's widely documented that a lot of those concerns were not were not heard. And we had um, in London anyway the example of um, Deliveroo, which is our kind of version of Postmates. You had delivery riders being forced to make a decision as to do, you, do I go to work and risk being the vector that is spreading the disease amongst different households or do I stay home and, and kind of not get my wage? So Deliveroo released uh, this, the press release saying that they were going to initiate a hardship fund that was going to fund these riders, which is great. But then the riders said, we can't access it. And, you know, this is, this is just a kind of idea that's not actually being implemented. And I think that some of those kind of times when you see these interests really pulling apart when they should really all be pushing in the same direction and that it would be in the public interest to do so. I think only greater communication, greater empowerment of different stakeholders would help with that. If you can imagine that when union membership was was widespread, it wasn't just about one union at one company. It was the idea that there was a structure throughout the economy where different you know in that case workers could actually find you know share strategies share best practice and we don't really have that it's kind of each individual to themselves you make the moral decision you can be an ethical consumer you can go work for an ethical company but not everybody has all of those choices you know there's a there are kind of class and race and other issues that are all kind of tied into that. So I think that, you know, partly it's about opening up this ideology. And I think we agree on on much of what that means in terms of importing some broader ideas into capitalism. But But from my point of view, I think that means also actually you know, giving a platform to different voices. And so that could be, you know, having different types of people as CEOs, you know, looking at how do we recruit CEOs? I think that there are some that, you know, the average person could name, but I couldn't name, you know, more than a handful of CEOs of listed companies. These, and that's just CEOs, let alone, you know, other board members and non-executive directors. These are people with huge influence over how the economy runs. And most of us don't know who they are. So when I'm thinking about, you know, questions of democracy and economic democracy, which is as important as political democracy. I'm really thinking about that, those structures, those kind of mechanisms through which we can influence how the economy works. I think many of those structures exist already. And so, you know, for, let me just give you an example of what consumers did to Burger King. You know, uh, Burger King didn't, uh, didn't launch the Impossible Whopper uh, because it felt guilty about the 10 billion land animals that get killed in America every year that generate, you know, that use half our water and create one of the single biggest contributors to greenhouse gases, they introduced the Impossible Whopper because consumers demanded it. And, and so, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, Google didn't cancel the, cancel the Department of, of Defense contract because they felt guilty. They did it because their workers demand, demanded it. And, and so I, I guess what I'm saying is, for sure, corporations need to get better at listening. And I think they are. Um, I think COVID's going to help make that happen even, even more than it's been happening. But we as citizens have to get better at talking and influencing. And, and, and yes, one of those channels is through government. Um, but I think there's important channels that we, there's important power that we have in our other roles as well that we have to make effective use of. And then to the extent that we're involved in corporations, we have to become better listeners. Mm.
I was going to ask you to a final question, which is have either of you changed your mind over the course of this discussion? And I'm going to say, I'm going to answer for you. <laughs> I think you both make compelling arguments. Um, you've written a couple of books which set them out uh, very clearly in terms of myths and case studies. I really recommend everybody uh, pick these up, Countable, and uh, competition is killing us. So you may disagree on the mechanism to get us there. But I think what you two have both pointed out is that business can deliver social good. That, you know, that both of you agree that we can rethink uh, the way that corporations operate and social good and social value and just changing the ways in which we used to think about how businesses are. And I think COVID has accelerated um, that process. So it's been a fascinating discussion. We could have we could have gone on and I could have kept continuing to see if you'll change each other's minds. But as I say, <laughs> I think your direction of travel um, is a really uh, promising one in terms of just thinking about all of us being more active and thinking about how to deliver more social good in all of our uh, roles as customers, as employees, as workers, and rethinking uh, the role of government as well. So thank you very much uh, to Michelle and to Warren for this fascinating uh, discussion. And to those of you uh, who are watching, thank you very much for your time. Again, you can find out more about both of their books by the web links in the session uh, description. And finally, a huge thanks to Intelligence Squared for organizing another stimulating event and indeed, if you'd like to find out more about Intelligence Square's nimble shift to delivering online events as well as um, podcasts and other things, please go to intelligencesquared.com. So from me, Linda Yu, thank you all very much indeed for tuning in. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.